Today's episode of Socially Democratic is presented to you by Dunn Street. Dunn Street partners with businesses, organisations, unions and social democratic parties around the globe to train leaders, develop engagement strategies and empower people to organise for change. And in 2020, Dunn Street will continue to work with folks that want to make a difference, inspire, give hope and enable leadership to achieve their shared purpose. To find out how you can partner with Dunn Street, hit us up at dunnstreet.com. Dot au. Hello and welcome to a, I will call this a special episode of Socially Democratic because I feel like we've sort of come to the end of a bit of a journey. Today is our last US presidential election campaign podcast before election day next uh, Tuesday in the States. And we did our very first podcast back in June 2019 and because of what 2020 has been like that literally feels like a decade ago um, and we've done a whole heap of uh, podcasts um, over that uh, time period with a bunch of amazing guests from uh, the United States to come on and break down the democratic primaries and their color and movement of just U.S. politics in general, and then obviously focusing in on the presidential campaign um, and all the other um, elections that will be taking place come the first Tuesday in November. Um, a mainstay of that has been Sam Schneidman, um, who you all know um, and has done, well, I think, like 10 or 12 podcasts on the U.S. campaign with me, um, and Katie Conley, um, who I had on maybe a month ago to talk about uh, her own campaign experiences because she's worked on uh, Hillary in uh, 2016, Obama 2012 and Mayor Pete's uh, primary campaign for this year. So both Sam and Katie are going to join us for today's final US presidential election breakdown. Um, And it's a whopper of a podcast and we're going to start to dive into a whole bunch of particular states and get their insights into what we can get ready for essentially uh, on election day i'm very nervous about this not the actual podcast but just you know the election in general and i feel the weight of um not responsibility but the weight of this journey coming to a conclusion so anyway i'm excited about today's podcast and i'm looking forward to talking to uh, both sam and katie don't forget to subscribe to socially democratic on apple Podcasts, spotify amazon uh, stitcher and if you're an apple podcast user please leave us a rating and give us a review and don't forget to follow dunn street on facebook twitter instagram and linkedin and today's uh, episode was uh, produced by rebecca connell so here we go let's get to our final u.s presidential election campaign podcast for 2020 We are taping this one on a Thursday morning, actually, in uh, not lockdown Melbourne, slightly becoming more and more freer as the days uh, progress. This has been a big week for Victorians. I don't really talk about COVID that much on this podcast because everyone else is, but um, um, for those of you living outside of Victoria, even indeed living outside of Australia, we came out of lockdown on Monday, which was a joyous occasion. A uh, A moment and a story of us and now. Um, which was uh, fantastic and um, great to see. And I think that everyone across the state has really um, enjoyed sharing this moment, excluding those journalists from News Corp and members of the Liberal Party. Otherwise, the rest of us are really happy about what's going on. And I'm very happy about what's going on here because we have come, this has been a bit of a journey in itself. Uh, I started uh, these US 
campaign podcast back in June last year to get ready for the 2020 general election. Uh, and this is the last one before America votes and America decides next Tuesday. And joining me on the line to unpack uh, everything that we need to know to get ready for election day. And if you go to any election day parties and you want to come across sounding like you know what you're talking about, then this is the podcast to listen to because I've got the experts. So joining me on the line from the Sunshine State is US Democratic campaign consultant to Obama in 2012, Hillary in 2016, and Mayor Pete in 2020. Katie Connolly, welcome back to Socially Democratic. Good morning. Thanks for having me. Um, I think you missed the other big news out of Melbourne, which is the Rugby League Grand Final. <laughs> that, that is true. But I, I'm speaking like a true Victorian where I didn't <laughs> yeah. really pay attention. Yeah, nobody cares. But, I, but, but I'm a Queenslander, so that matters to me. Indeed. Well, I did hear something about some guy called Phil Good, who apparently is very biased in his colour commentary, and that was getting everyone pissed off on Twitter. That did sort of seep into my world. That's Didn't something happen with the um, AFL grand final? Oh, I, I, actually, also, this is where I'm a bad Victorian because I didn't watch the <laughs> AFL grand final either. Steven, here I was. I was setting you up, man. You know, you can knock this out of the park and reassert no. Victorian dominance. No, no. I am uh, too, too heavily influenced by my Scottish parents. My only football I watch is the Ramble game and it's uh, in north of um, the... Um, Hadrian's Wall in Scotland. That's where I'm paying my attention. Anyway, and that other voice that you hear in the background uh, before he was introduced is uh, your good friend and mine joining me from Vermont this time, former Obama Regional Field Director and Socially Democratic US Campaign Consultant, uh, uh, Correspondent, I should say, Sam Schneiderman. Welcome back. Thank you. It's good to be here. Sam, mum asked after you during the week, she said, when's your pal Sam coming back on the shore? Um, so you should know that you poll very well amongst small Glaswegian women. <laughs> oh man. Well, I'm glad to know. I'm glad to know that. I did not know that about myself. So, yeah, you know, glad, uh, thank you for sharing. Katie, uh, don't take offense. Mum didn't ask after you. Fair enough. That's okay. But give it time. She listens to the yeah. show. You might be able to build a relationship with her over the course of the next hour. I'll do my best. I'll make some outlander references. Maybe that'll get her in. Maybe. Um, any, any courtroom drama, basically she gets around. Okay. All right. Oh, I'm a bit lacking on that front, but I'll do my best. Fair enough. Okay. Speaking of courtroom drama, uh, one show that has caught on here in the U S at least among, uh, people I know is rake. I don't know if you guys know about that, but that's some ABC Australian drama. Is that right? I've not seen it. Yeah. It's supposed to be like funny. Oh, right. Okay. Very good. Well, well the- the one from uh, my clearly very different friendship group that has caught on is Bluey. Bluey is huge with the with the parent the lockdown parent cohort of Washington DC. Is that a, is that Australian or a US? Bluey. Yeah. It's about blue healers. Yeah. Oh really? It's about a family of blue healer dogs. Oh, I've not it. There you go. Fantastic. I, wow. So you're striking out on football. Yep. You're striking out on pop culture. Yep. <laughs> it's a good thing you get a politics podcast, mate. Well, I know. Actually, what I have been doing is I've been revisiting The Wire. I don't know why I decided um, to. I just started watching it again. God, it's a good show. I forgot how good it is. Um, let's let's get to – this is not a pop, pop, pop culture <laughs> podcast, as much as I'd like it to be. Uh, let's talk about politics. And we are now in the final week of the campaign. And uh, I just – before we sort of get into the, the the main set of questions, I just kind of want to get an idea from both of you about how you're feeling going into this 
final week. This feels like it's been quite a journey. And I'll start with you, Katie. Your thoughts just generally about the campaign heading into the final week. Are we in a good position here from a democratic standpoint? I mean, I have a knot in my stomach. I feel sick thinking about it. And the reason is that the stakes are so high and what is on the line is so important that we just cannot lose this thing. And I feel like anybody who listened to the previous podcast is probably going to get a bit bored with my next statement. But I really feel like if this election was held under normal circumstances, that Joe Biden not only would win, but would win convincingly, you know, very, you know, up... 330 plus electoral votes. Um, we are not in that situation. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of really encouraging early vote numbers. There is a lot of um, really enormous statistics coming out about the number of people who are voting by mail and all of that. But that has really inherent risks, um, particularly when you're up against a party like the Republican Party that has perfected the art of voter suppression. Um, and you look at some of these states that we're going to talk about today where Biden is up, but up by a point or two, maybe three. Um, and that can not be a victorious margin if ballots are getting chucked out, right? If, if people have filled out their ballots incorrectly, if they haven't posted them on time, and all of the numbers that I see coming in is Joe Biden absolutely killing it with the early vote and with the absentee vote. But the thing that I worry about is those votes getting counted, those votes, you know, not being tossed out for, you know, reasons of spurious irregularities. Um, and in states like Georgia and Florida, um, and North Carolina, Wisconsin, um, you have very organized Republican efforts to um, disenfranchise voters. Um, we now have a Supreme Court. There are various statements out today from several of the justices indicating uh, the degree to which they are comfortable with rejecting votes received um, late in the piece, <sighs> counted late in the piece. So um, I feel really anxious and really scared, not about the strength of the, the campaign and not about the um, strength of the candidate, but about the strength of the uh, institutions of democracy and them holding up in the United States in the face of what has been a decades long assault that has been essentially perfected in the last few years by particularly Republican statewide office holders, but um, even by, you know, the president of the United States, you know, sending out misinformation. So a bit of a long answer, um, but that's why I'm, I, I'm excited and I hope it goes the way I think it can and should go, but there is so much unknown right now. Yeah, it feels like there are two campaigns here. There is the traditional campaign and there's a campaign that's going to be waged in all the various uh, levels of um the judiciary all the way up to the Supreme mm -hmm. Court for a, a number of days and maybe weeks after. It feels like 20, 2000 can happen all over again, but on a grander scale. Sam, what's your thoughts going into the final week? Well, I'm not sure how much I can add on to uh, Katie's eloquent answer there, but um, I agree with her. I am very nervous about what is going to transpire. I think Katie sort of ran us through all the reasons why one should be concerned about the outcome of this election. But really what worries me is, uh, on top of what Katie mentioned, is the fact that we as a country are heading into an election that is unlike any other that we've had before in this simple sense. And that is that we may, the who appears to be the winner on election night, 
is probably not going to be who ends up being the win- winner after a week or so. And we've never really had an experience. I guess, you know, we had 2000, but the context was so different then because uh, I think people, there was a lot of trust in our democratic institutions then that they're just, that has been uh, eroded over time, particularly within the last four years. And so what I really worry about is whether or not we can withstand uh, the uncertainty that has a high degree of likelihood of falling out from election night and how we as a country respond to that. Going into um, both of you have uh, a depth of campaign experience uh, over the years. And I think it's just useful for um, some of our listeners that have never been involved in a US presidential campaign at various levels to give us an insight to what the final sort of week looks like. And I want to start with you, uh, Katie, from your time and working on uh, the Obama campaign and the Hillary campaign. Um, What would you be doing in this final week? Where would you be centering your energies and efforts as you get closer to uh, Tuesday? So the the funny thing about being a pollster is um, by this stage in a campaign, my work is largely done, right? Like, so, so much of what we're doing is in the lead up to this, you know, last period, which is frankly all about execution. It's all about GOTV. It's all about, you know, even at this late stage, persuasion is at a point where you've decided on all your messages, you've made all your ad buys, you know, there isn't, you're not going to shift your message in the last, you know, six days of an election. Um, you know, my last big contribution in, in these sort of moments is, you know, figuring out what the closing message is going to be, right? Like, what are you going to, you know, what is, what is the last big ad buy that you do? You know, how are you going to get to those um, persuadable voters? And all of that work is, is done already for someone like me. So, um, you know, Joe Biden's already released his closing spot. It's a very strong spot that sort of really, um, really demonstrates the degree of message discipline that Biden, who is infamously somebody who talks off message all of the time, um, but this campaign has been an incredible exercise in hammering the same themes from the day he announced to now. And it's been really quite impressive to watch them not get um, swayed to and fro with, you know, the Twitter debates and the the individual, uh, you know, issues that that pop up and seem to dominate a news cycle, but really stay on their theme of we need a uniter in chief, we need to overcome the chaos, the country is divided, and, you know, we need to restore, in his words, the soul of America. And that was his opening message, and that is his closing message. Um, that is a message that really resonates a lot with suburban women um, with white college educated folks um, and particularly which what we're seeing all across the country with boomers like with people over the age of 65 you know they they are people who really can recall days in which America did not feel like this did not feel so vitriolic did not feel so angry that there was some spirit of cooperation between the parties even if it was a bit of a mirage it sort of existed on some level so I think um for me, in my last days, all you're doing is sort of tracking, right? So you just do these very short polls and you just sort of get the numbers back in, back in to say, looks like we're up a point here or, you know, Hispanics are a little bit soft here or whatever it is. Um, but in these last days, um, there is a certain degree of agility. You can sort of change up some ad buys and stuff like that, but you're not going to make a new ad right now. You know, you're, pro- you're not really going to change your message right now. Um, a lot of, you know, you may sort of put some... GOTV effort in places that feel like they're not coming out or feeling a bit soft, but um, a lot of those decisions are not 
in the realm of a pollster, you know, <laughs> like yeah. I, I'm just sort of reporting back, you know, here's how our absentee votes are coming in. Here's how we're doing, blah, blah, blah. Um, and usually, I mean, we don't in, in 16, I don't, I think we polled on our own dime at this point because we were curious, but I don't think they were paying us for polls at this point. Um, yeah. So we just, you just got to wait and you got to wait and see election days are very long, long days for pollsters. Cause you just, it's, it's, it's a horrible anxiety producing day. White knuckle ride all the way to uh, close the polls. Um, and you mentioned GOTV. So that's uh, a nice segue to then talk to, uh, uh, Sam, um, because that's your background from an organising standpoint. You know, you were the regional field director in uh, for Obama in 2012 in the battleground state of Nevada. So I assumed in 2012 you were basically just, you know, playing the slots uh, in um, Las Vegas, one of the casinos, basically, in the final week. Is that what you're up to? I'm actually more of a blackjack guy um, <laughs> myself. I like the, uh, the stiffer odds. I like the adrenaline of that game. Uh, so I was actually spending all of my time heading into the election um and playing blackjack at the casino fair enough so this time around the money that we were we were saving from not running any uh polls or advice <laughs> looking at the get out the vote project uh sorry program in 2020 um how are you feeling well, that's a really good question, Stephen, because um, this year totally scrambles whatever, like all the frameworks that people have uh, for GOTV, right? Heading into, you know, the final week and weekend before an election, that is what everyone is focused on. How do we reach people on the phone, but especially at the doors who haven't yet voted to get them to vote? Now, the pandemic really scrambles that because, A, uh, the Biden campaign has run a more curtailed field operation across its states. And uh, that has made that makes it difficult to reach everyone. So what's interesting here is that in a typical uh, year, there has never been such an emphasis on early voting and absentee voting as there has been this year. So one thing that an organized uh, field operation and an organizer is really looking to do in the final days before an election is to get people to vote as early as possible. That does two things. Number one is that means you have less and less people that you've identified as your supporters who are likely to support you that you need to turn out on election day and the closer you get to it. The second thing that that does is it allows you to build this narrative of momentum that your race is the winning race. Now that's important because people like to, you know, hitch their wagon to a winner. Uh, so as we head into this uh, election day, in the midst of a pandemic that is not conducive to interpersonal contact and in the year when so many people have uh, already voted, things are a bit different. So Democrats, of course, are trying to win the early vote and then they're trying to uh, get to all the people over the last four or five days that they can who have not yet voted. Uh, what makes this year tricky, especially in a state like Pennsylvania, is the uncertainty around whether ballots will be accepted. And Katie sort of mentioned this uh, earlier. So for context, in the contested 2000 election in between Bush and Gore, between 20 and 30,000 ballots in one county in Florida were disqualified 
So you can turn out all the people that you want, but what if their ballots are screwed up? What if their signatures don't quite match? What if uh, they forget to get a witness uh, to sign their ballot? Now, this is really important because there are estimates that in the state of Pennsylvania, there are up to a hundred, there are between a hundred and two hundred thousand ballots that are uh, potentially in peril because of uh, contests over their validity. In a state like Texas, for example, uh, there are lawsuits that are going on as we speak to eliminate up to 100,000 votes of people who used uh, ballot curbside drop-offs. And the argument from the Republican attorneys who are suing to invalidate those votes is that that voting mechanism is only reserved for the disabled and the elderly. And therefore, if someone does not meet those criteria but uses that mechanism, their ballot should be discount disqualified. That's another 100,000 votes. So if you remember the 2000 election where 20 to 30,000 votes were invalidated in just a single county in Florida, in a state that was ultimately decided by 527 votes, we're looking at a couple hundred thousand votes in just a handful of states that are at risk of being disqualified. So your job, I would imagine, as an organizer this year is not just to get out the vote and make sure people are are voting, but to make sure that they're voting in the right way. So there's a voter education component that takes a more central role in the 2020 election to the extent that there is just no comparison in prior elections in United States history. Um, I'm not suggesting... Can I just add one thing? I I just want to defend the Biden camp for just one second there. You know, Sam had mentioned that it was a curtailed field program, which is absolutely true in terms of in-person contacts, voter contacts. But they've actually done a pretty astonishing job of uh, calling and texting people, which are sort of new methods and are less um, tried and true than your traditional go and knock on doors uh, field organizing. But one of the things that we found um, with Pete's campaign in Iowa uh, was the value of um, what we called, you know, relational organizing. So rather than cold calling people that you've never met before, going through your own phone contacts, going through your churches, people that you know, and organizing in a more peer-to-peer setting with people that you're familiar with. Um, and given the number of candidates that descended on Iowa um, and the number of calls that registered Democrats were getting from random people, it was a lot more meaningful to hear directly from someone that you knew. Um, it's very hard to replicate that um, nationally uh, because you know we're talking people in you know DC texting people in Florida and all that sort of stuff, but they are actually they have done millions of voter contacts, you know, whether or not it will be as persuasive as the sort of, you know, door to door stuff or, you know, seeing people on the street and all that. But they are actually doing hell of a yeah, lot of Yeah, for sure. And I, I was just talking about over the scope of the entire race. You know, they, they've certainly run a robust field program, but it has certainly been impacted by the pandemic. Uh, and and it certainly has been a deviation from what I think has been the traditional, uh, you know, execution of a field campaign at least over the last 12 to uh 
12 years in democratic politics. Yeah. We had uh, Katie Parsons on from 270 Strategies last week. And actually, I talked a lot about that, about how the Democratic Party had to make adjustments, both the Biden campaign and the DNC's organizing call because of COVID. But they were still feeling really confident about their ability to reach out to voters, have meaningful conversations with them, either for persuasion or indeed for turnout. And also starting to strategize around how to get people to both vote early and try and encourage them to not um, send their ballots in, but to actually try and go and vote or drop them off at places like those drop-off points as well. So, Yeah. And one other thing I would say on this is that, you know, I was talking to some friends on Biden World earlier this week, um, and one of the sort of quirks that sort of really interesting about early voting has been that because so many strong Democrats have early voted, you know, so, so many people in those sort of high support score percentiles have already cast their ballots, it actually means their voter contact universes are, have shrunk. Mm. And so they're actually able to more effectively contact the sort of, uh, you know, persuasion folks that um, are harder to contact, but they can pump more resources into that in these last sort of, you know, 10 or less day you know now it's only six days but when i was talking to them it was like 10 days so they actually have uh, their their resource allocation is more efficient right now because all of those very strong democrats have already you know done a lot of either early voting absentee voting and all of that and they're able to really sort of concentrate their organizing efforts in these last 10 days on um particular universes that need turning out um, and that is also very unprecedented. We've never been able to do that because right now in a normal campaign, you're still trying to sort of reach your Dems and get them to make sure that they're coming out. But at the moment, it's a lot of those people taken off the table. So in some ways, that's sort of a really interesting and good sign for, for Biden. It makes, their, it makes their resource decisions a lot easier. What I want to do now is we might skip ahead a bit. I had some other questions I was going to ask you guys, but I actually want to, I think now is a good opportunity to actually start to deep dive into some of those states. And before today's um, episode, I asked both Katie and Sam to do just a bit of research on some of the states that we wanted to particularly pay attention to that would be of, of significant importance on election day. Um, Katie, um, Pennsylvania and Florida were the two that we um, got you to go do some um, research on and uh, Sam, Georgia and Michigan. Katie, let's start with you and talk about Pennsylvania. I can't promise that I did in my head. <laughs> <laughs> you only told me yesterday, but I know a little bit about Pennsylvania. Yeah. Uh, what just do you want to what do? You do what I do. Just make it up. Well, I mean, let's, what, what, are your, what are your thoughts going into Pennsylvania? How are you feeling about Pennsylvania? Well, I just feel like it all hangs on Pennsylvania. Like uh, on election day, I'm just going to be basically, I don't care what they're talking about on the television. I'm just going to be checking the results in Pennsylvania because I just feel like if Biden picks up Pennsylvania, it just becomes so much harder for Trump to find a pathway to 270 votes. So how are you feeling about Pennsylvania looking at the poll? Start from a polling perspective. So um, the thing is, that you're looking at Pennsylvania on election night, I'm looking at Florida. And the reason I'm looking at Florida on election night is because it reports early. So we'll know the results of Florida on election night. Whereas Pennsylvania, you know, there are certain counties, you know, Erie, Cumberland, that they're not even going to start counting um, the early votes and the postal votes until either after polls close, I think, Cumberland the next day. So... Pennsylvania could be one of these states that's that Sam mentioned earlier that could be like really drawn out for for, for several days. Um, and I think, you know, it's also one of those states where um, the 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 blue vote is going to be very concentrated in those early votes. Right. So but Florida is sort of different because we will know Florida on election night like they will. You, you will have those results. It's going to be close. It's going to be extremely close. 
But if Biden wins Florida, there's basically no path for Trump. So if he can win Florida on election night, um, then you sort of cut off at the knees that misinformation that Sam was talking about earlier for that for that next week, because all of the sort of fuzziness around some of those other states it doesn't really matter when you've got those 29 electoral votes. You know, if Wisconsin hasn't come in yet, doesn't matter. You've got those 29. So I think um, Pennsylvania will be a tough state to watch on election night because it's going to probably look pretty red mm. pretty early on. Um, and, you know, Democrats have have done very well since 2016. Look, you think about the history of Pennsylvania, right? Like, so um, basically since 2000, it's been trending bluer and bluer and bluer. And then 2016 was sort of the anomaly. And Hillary Clinton lost by about 40,000 votes. There are about 200,000 um, Green and Libertarian Party votes, those Johnson and Stein voters. So those were really determinative in, in Pennsylvania, right? So if she had, if, if those third party voters, which most of them would have gone to Hillary, had gone to Hillary, she would have won Pennsylvania. And I think Pennsylvania has um, certainly become more active on the left since then. You've still got those very red parts of Pennsylvania in between the major cities. But you think about, you know, Connor Lamb running for the House of Representatives in a pretty red district in 2017 and winning that. You look at the fact that they sent four women. Um, they hadn't had a female representative from Pennsylvania for, for I think, since Alison Schwartz stepped down in 2014, was it, um, to run for governor? And they elected four women um, to the House of Representatives in 2018. It was a big blue wave in 2018. Um, and I think, you know, Pennsylvania is the kind of state where those white suburban women, those white college educated women, um, very active, very anti-Trump. Um, and there's a lot of potential for really running up the margins there. You also have a pretty active um, black community there. You saw Pe President Obama um, uh, about a week ago in Pennsylvania doing some pretty great. I don't know if you watched his speech, but it was so fun. He's obviously having a blast. Um, he's just so good. He's such a good campaigner. But I was, you know, I was in full swoon mode watching it. Um, but, uh, you know, and, and you, you know, uh, the black community is very organized, um, particularly around the big cities. So I think Pens I think Biden looks good in Pennsylvania. We are consistently seeing him up in public polls um, by, you know, five or more points. Some of them are closer than others. Um, but I think Pennsylvania will ultimately be a win for Biden if things go right. Um, there is, of course, what Sam mentioned earlier, the, the issues with postal voting there. They have this thing where you have to put your envelope in another envelope. It's, I don't know, it's sort of com complicated, but a lot of people, they don't put it in that second envelope. It's called a naked ballot and the naked ballots get chucked and it could be, you know, 100,000 of them get chucked. So I don't know. We'll see. Um, but my hope is that Biden wins Pennsylvania. The problem is I don't know that we'll know that on election night. I hope the naked ballot doesn't become the 2020 version. Of, yes. Yeah. I mean, you've, the, the DNC actually did a big ad buy um, to, to educate voters about the, the dual envelope situation there. Like they, I know the DNC has been, you know, very um, eager to do more voter education there, which as an Australian just feels so weird that political parties have to do voter education, like that there isn't, you know, a, an independent electoral commission that like does this kind of stuff. But, um, yeah, yeah, that's the point that I was making earlier about why voter education is going to be such an important part of, you know, a GOTV operation and this person to person contact. So organizers and volunteers making sure that people know how to fill out their ballots properly. 
Mm-hmm. We'll uh, come back. I mean, you just mentioned Florida there as well, Katie, and we'll come back to Florida in a moment. But Sam, um, I want to get your thoughts on um, take your pick, Georgia or Michigan. Which one? Which one do you want to start with? Well, uh, why don't we start with Michigan? Do it. The, okay, the Wolverine. So the Wolverine State. How are you feeling about Wolverine Michigan? State. Well, I think uh, the prospects in Michigan uh, appear sanguine for uh, for Joe Biden, and that's for a couple reasons. Polling trend has been moving steadily towards him over time, which is a good sign. But beyond that, uh, Trump has been steady in the low 40s, which is not great uh, if you're an incumbent. And uh, particularly when your support in that state was marginal to begin with. So he didn't win Michigan by that many votes uh, in uh, 2016. And it seems like he is in a very perilous position uh, to be able to rebuild that magic. Another thing is that Biden appears to sort of be piecing back together parts of the coalition that helped elect him with Obama in 2008 and 2012, uh, particularly white voters, um, where his support is actually better in some places than expected. But one reason why I think Michigan is uh, interesting to me is that uh, there are are 12 counties in Michigan that Donald Trump won in 2016, but that Barack Obama won in 2008 and 2012. And 20% of the Michigan population lives in those 12 counties, almost 20%. But also in those counties since 1960 have matched the national election 75% of the time. So, uh, you know, it's going to be a closely fought race. But um, if I'm the Biden campaign, I'm feeling good about what is happening there. Yeah, one thing I saw about Michigan that I thought was really interesting, you know, in the the loss was really narrow in 2016. And there was a lot of sort of media commentary about depressed turnout among black voters, which is true. But the other uh, group of people that had depressed turnout in 2016 was 18 to 29 year old voters. Um, and I think I did a calculation um, and it's based off of exit polls. I have to go back and make sure it's right still. But that even though Hillary's margin over um, Trump was less than Obama's margin over Romney in 2012. So even though she was winning less of those 18 to 29 year olds, had they turned out in the same number that they had turned out in in 2012, um, that would have been enough to give her the state, right? So had those 18 to 29 year olds, even if they weren't supporting her with the high margins, um, they would have made the difference in that state. And I saw some early vote numbers Um, that were just astronomical among 18 to 29 year olds. And I am a little bit hesitant to put too much faith in early vote because some of it is just vote shifting. It's just people moving their votes forward um, that, you know, they were going to vote on election day, but they're just doing it earlier. Um, But it was, uh, I have to find it. There's been a 10 times what? Yeah, there's been 120% increase. Yeah. From 120% increase of 18 to 29 year olds voting in the state of Michigan in 2020 at this point, still six days before the election from where they were in 2016. And so, yeah, that, that must've been the same thing that I saw. And it just, that was one of those things where I was like, Oh, okay. This, this feels, this feels pretty solid. Sticking with you, Katie, uh, 
Florida. Um, Florida. I just don't want to think about Florida. Florida just, <laughs> you know, as John Stewart said in 2012, I think, on his program the night after the election, he said, finally, we had an election result where we didn't have to rely on Florida. <laughs> and everyone cheered. Oh, this sort of unity ticket about, oh, fuck you, Florida. <sighs> so here we are. We're back with Florida. And you're right. You, you know, you, you are dead right that, you know, we are going to know the result. Well, most likely because they're going to start counting early, which is great for, you know, people like us. But how are you feeling about Florida? Because there's a guy who's on Twitter. I don't know if you've seen him. I can't remember his name, but he's giving like daily updates of early voting in Florida and it all looks amazing. And, but I just, I just don't, I never feel comfortable about Florida. How are you feeling? Yeah. Oh, look, I mean, early vote um, always looks good for Democrats, right? Like that's, you know, Democrats vote early. We always have, it's the way it goes. Um, I, this is sort of back to what I was saying earlier. Florida is a state that I think um, is winnable for Biden um, for a couple of reasons. One, um, those white suburban women have, you know, really moved into his his column, college-educated white voters, um, and the 65-plus. And we all know that it's an older electorate in Florida, and he is doing remarkably well. Um, in fact, some of his uh, the areas where his vote is soft, in particular Hispanic voters in Florida, where for a range of reasons Biden is really underperforming both Hillary and Obama there, but that is almost um, uh, outweighed by his excelling with those older voters, right? Um, and so the polls show it to be very close. You know, things that I've done in Florida, the cycle show it to be extremely close. You know, Trump paid a lot of attention to Florida over the past four years. He mm. goes there frequently. They have a huge Fox News viewing base there. Um, their campaign has really targeted Florida. They have in particular targeted Florida Hispanics. I think that's part of the reason why Biden's quite soft with those voters um, was they, you know, they camped out there for four years and Biden did not have that luxury. Um, so Florida is tough but winnable. But the the way that I look at his margins, that's the one or two points is voter suppression territory, right? Like, so that that can be those ballots that get thrown out. That can be people, you know, intimidating people at the polls on election day. That can be various, you know, votes ruled invalid. So I just, I worry about Florida. I have like a little kernel of hope because I have seen, you know, there's a lot of like the Republican voters against Trump. There is, there's been the Lincoln Project, you know, all these sort of folks who, you know, have mixed feelings about, but they've been putting a lot of effort into the state. I know, you know, we've seen Mayor Pete is there today talking to veterans, you know, like they're, 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 they're sending big surrogates there. Um, there's a lot of campaign activity. Um, and I think on election night, we're going to see sort of some pretty big margins, you know, in Miami-Dade and, you know, in that sort of Southern tip. Um, but if we can see Biden sort of, he doesn't even have to win all of these areas in the northern part of the state, like he doesn't have to win Jacksonville, but if he can narrow the margin in some of those places, um, then that's that's a win. So I don't know. I, I really want to be hopeful about Florida. I'm, I'm nervous about Florida. But um, again, like if it comes in on election night, we're golden. There was uh, reports yesterday that uh, the uh, TV ad buy in Florida for Trump, um, he has, he's run out of money uh, yeah. in his own campaign and he said to the oh, RNC, man. you need to pay for the rest of the ad buy. Is that, what are we reading to that? Are, are we, this isn't like McCain in 2008 where they just stopped putting money into Michigan completely because it was now off the table or is this just we're prioritizing money because we just don't have like I mean what 
I mean, honestly, their finances are a complete mystery. I have no idea what they did. They raised God a billion dollars. Amount, it's insane amounts of money. I have no the idea that they're out of money is insane. Mm. It doesn't make any sense. I don't know what they blew it on, um, but you know they they clearly they you know prioritize they're going to prioritize Florida because it it matters to everybody and it is crucial to his path. It is critical to his path. You know we can we can get to the presidency without Florida. He cannot. So that's why it's really important. I think um, that's why you're seeing him sort of. Uh, begging for folks to spend mm. on his behalf there. Sam, are you going to jump in there? The uh, Trump campaign's finances are going to be one of the enduring <laughs> stories of his corruption and of the, corru- of the corruption of people around him. Mm. Uh, and this is an aside, but his campaign manager is now under investigation for embezzling between 40 and $70 million dollars uh, of the one billion dollars that uh, was raised by the Trump campaign, they have pulled out of um, Florida uh, making investments because they're out of cash. Uh, the cash was spent really badly. You know what it reminds me of? You know how like you watch those ESPN thirty for thirty docs about you know those like big time athletes who go broke and you're like how could they go broke? They had the <laughs> Nike con- the endorsement, they had the mega contract, and they were just like you know spending all their money the most re- like buying white tigers and shit like that. That's pretty much what the Trump campaign has been doing. Sticking with you, Sam, Georgia. How yeah. are you feeling about Georgia? You know, uh, Georgia is interesting because um, I think that uh, when we talk about uh, the expansion of the playing field for Democrats, a lot of people like to talk about, you know, the importance of demographics. And as the country becomes more diverse, uh, you know, Democrats should be making inroads in states that traditionally have been seen as Republican. Georgia is probably uh, what comes top of mind when people have that conversation however the story about of georgia is voter suppression so the most useful way to look at georgia is the uh is to compare what's happening in 2020 with what happened in the race for governor of, of 2018 where the outcome ended up being around 1% between the Republican who won, Brian Kemp, and Stacey Abrams, who uh, is is well-known and well-loved. But that doesn't tell the whole story. There were so many disenfranchised voters in Georgia, especially black voters, who were disenfranchised for, uh, for a number of reasons, but especially long polling lines and faulty polling machines. So the story that I think we should all be thinking about in Georgia is voter suppression and how does that impact the margin? I think Katie brought this up earlier. If the margin is within one to two percent, we're looking at a voter suppression victory for Trump and Republicans. Um, So that will be especially interesting to me. But you've seen Biden travel there uh, within the last week or so. And Really, I think what the Biden's campaign calculus is, look, they don't need to win Georgia to win 270 electoral votes and get to the White House. Georgia isn't even um, probably high up in their contingency plan states or I mean, by high up, I mean the the top one. 
But I think what Georgia, why Georgia really matters is down ballot, especially the Senate. There are two open Senate seats that uh, are in Georgia, one uh, belonging to a, an exceptionally um, uh, disliked Republican named Kelly Loeffler, who ha- was never voted into the Senate, was appointed by the governor who uh won that election under dubious circumstances in 2018. And then sort of your run-of-the-will white man who's not very charismatic uh, is running in the other race in Georgia. And I think Democrats really, if they're going to win the Senate this year, really sort of think that they need to win one of those two races. And so I think uh, that's why you see the Biden campaign really, uh, really um, investing heavily in yeah, I agree with that. And I would just one thing I would add to that, though, is that I think within the DNC and within Democratic Party circles more generally, there has been a bit of a shift in the past sort of, you know, six to eight years where people are really now thinking about generational investments and long term power building and long term infrastructure building. And Georgia is one of those places. Right. So even if it is not a win this year. Um, I think what a lot of this investment is doing is setting up the infrastructure and setting up the um, uh, activists and the sort of party machine there to actually make Georgia competitive over the long term. And I think, you know, it's a it's a harder thing to, you know, it's it, it heartbreak on election night and it's harder to like, take that long term view. But um, Georgia is a really interesting state. It has, a, it's, it, it has a lot of internal migration growth, you know, people moving to Georgia, the Atlanta area, the Atlanta suburbs is a really high growth area for people of color, for young people. Um, so the story of Georgia long term could be really interesting for Democrats, um, even if we don't quite make it this time. There was a, um, the James Carville podcast, uh, an episode that I listened to, I don't even know how long ago it was because this lockdown has been quite a blur, but I think it might have been <laughs> in the middle of the year. And uh, he and Paul Begala were talking about two particular counties, one in Georgia and one in Texas, and we'll talk about Texas in a moment, uh, Gwinnett County uh, in the suburbs of Atlanta. And they were talking about that as not necessarily a bellwether county that would predict the outcome of the state, but certainly they said to look at that county as a, as a as a microcosm of where Georgia is heading. Um, I don't know if um, that, that, that county for you, Katie, has come up in any of your uh, research. Yeah, it's one of those things that people are talking about it a lot like, at, at, for exactly that reason. I don't know anything specific about it beyond um, it's sort of emblematic of the changes that are happening across that state. But um, I think there's, yeah, and, and, you know, there are places in Arizona, there are a couple of other kind of Sunbelt states as well that are going to, and, and certainly in North Carolina too, um, that they're sort of those suburban areas, they're increasingly diverse, increasingly college educated, um, and those are all, you know, good signs. I mean, demographics are not destiny. You mm. still have to have a good message. You still have to deliver for voters. You still have to, you know, go out and ask them for their vote, you know, <laughs> but, um, but demographics are important to destiny. I'll, I'll say that. They, they are. And that's an incredibly good point as well, because I used to hate it in campaigns where you'd be around those, the, you know, those strategic tables and there'd always be the person that would come in there and say, well, the demographics of this state or this battleground seat 
marginal seat don't look good for us so let's not campaign campaign there yeah. or indeed they do look good for us therefore by virtue of the fact that they're good demographics we will win that seat and i'm going well hang on a minute we actually need to go we need to go talk to those people we actually need to run a campaign it's not just like monopoly board i'll buy that i'll buy that i'll buy that and that'll be ours no no you actually need to go out and talk to voters so yeah i do uh i um um uh i want to lift up uh, that point you just you just made there that is so crucial people forget about that bit oh we're gonna go campaign to them and try and convince yeah. them to vote for us let's yeah i mean if, if 2016 didn't convince people that demographics are not destiny nothing will indeed but. let's um let's uh let's throw in texas now and i, I want to get thoughts from both of you on this one i did leave it off the table originally when we we're going to talk about because I, I i guess i'm projecting my own thoughts about the state We'd all love to win Texas. It would just completely, you know, change the way that electoral politics works in the United States. But I just, I personally feel, particularly after that last New York Times Siena College poll, I just thought, uh, no, it's just still a little bit too far away. Clearly coming on the table where we want to campaign, and I think that's, and talking to that point you said before about Katie, about, uh, you know, the, the, where the party is looking to in the future. However, let everyone probably who listens to this podcast wants to get your thoughts on Texas. So Sam, you've done a bit of research. First of all, I'll go to you first and then Katie, I want to get your follow up thoughts on, uh, on Texas, but starting with you, Sam. Well, yeah. So Texas is uh, interesting because uh, looking back at 2018, the uh, Texas was famous for uh, obviously the Beto O'Rourke first Ted Cruz race, right? One of the things that was interesting is that Ted Cruz was deeply pop, uh, unpopular within the state of Texas. And that really dragged him down. The uh, polling there was neck and neck heading into election day and ended up being around a 2% victory for Ted Cruz, which if you're a Republican in the state of Texas, I think that really raised a red flag for you because what that says is there's something at play here where Texas is now a place where we're going to have to pour in resources and compete for. Now, if a Republican has to compete in Texas, that means they've got less resources to spend in other really important states in their path to electoral college victory, like a Florida or like a Pennsylvania and like a Georgia that we've discussed earlier. Uh, one of the things that's interesting about um, Texas uh, which makes it a little bit idiosyncratic and tough to pin down, is that uh, the uh, Latino vote and support for Joe Biden within the Latino community is more at play here than it has been than it was in, in past elections. And I think we're really going to see whether or not Trump has been able to make inroads within that community. And there is polling to suggest that Trump has made inroads with especially black, young black men and Latino voters overall. So Texas shares many, uh, many of the characteristics that you mentioned with uh, you know, Georgia's Gwinnett County. It's got cities like Austin, Dallas, San Antonio, especially that are uh, growing, becoming uh, more diverse, more, more college educated. And this means that Democrats are able to compete more there. Uh, so while I do not think that Joe Biden is going to win in Texas, what I do think is that his ability to compete in Texas is going to be able to make a difference for Democrats down the ballot. And the fact that he is able to compete in Texas means that the Trump campaign can 
are in trouble there. I think one of the things that I'm most interested to see is how does the Senate race turn out there between a relatively less between a lesser known candidate uh, in MJ Hagar, who's not doesn't definitely does not have the same recognition and star power that Ben O'Rourke did, uh, but also how does John Cornyn fare? He is. Uh, not the most popular politician, but by no means is as unpopular as Ted Cruz within that state. So um, I think the Democrats still definitely have an uphill battle to climb in Texas, particularly because we don't know how Republican lawsuits uh, are going to play out to uh, impact the way that votes are counted in a state like Texas. Remember, I said that there is an ongoing lawsuit uh, there. Uh, so uh, that's one thing that I'm going to to be uh look uh texas is going to be uh really interesting and really exciting to follow um but uh i, I wouldn't be expecting a biden victory there uh, on election night or whenever we end up knowing the end result katie your thoughts on texas yeah i mean texas is um Interesting and unpredictable. I feel like Democrats have had this love affair with turning Texas blue for like 12, 16 years now. And it's sort of this mirage on the horizon that we're all sort of working towards. And what Better Rock did in 2018 in, in moving us closer to that goal um, was unbelievably uh, impressive, you know, and his campaign and all of the grassroots organizations in Texas that supported his campaign and the way he energized um, activists and party faithful there, the massive registration drives that have continued and that Better O'Rourke under the radar um, is still doing and leading. Um, and I don't, I'm just using him as a proxy because there are a lot of people in Texas that are doing really hard work, but, but they are still registering people in really, really strong numbers in, in Texas and, and really upping that um, because Texas always had really low turnout. Like that's one of the other things about Texas, it's historic voter disenfranchisement, but turnout has always been low in Texas. And what we're looking at this time around is historic turnout in Texas. So some of those counties around Austin, which is basically a very blue city these days, um, have already in early vote have already surpassed the total 2016 vote. Like these are just bonkers numbers coming out of Texas. So, you know, the, 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 the number of people voting is huge. Um, 2018, just, you know, Sam mentioned the down ballot stuff, but some of these house races um, are also uh, really important and really competitive. And you saw um, two of them flip, um, at least two, I don't know if it's more than two, at least two flip in 2018. You've got Colin Allred um, flipping that district. Um, some really good candidates there. So we could have an increasing number of house members um, that are Democrats from Texas. Um, and you know, this, uh, the, the, the turnout thing is really hard to game out, you know, mm. because of all the suppression that we keep mentioning um, and it's unclear, you know, whether or not it's Democrats that are, that are pull, pulling all these new people to the polls. You know, certainly plenty of Trump party faithful. Um, and certainly, you know, what we're seeing is some of those drop-off voters that didn't vote in 18 coming back to, to cast their ballots for Trump again, obviously. Um, but there's some energy in Texas. Like it's, it's uh, astonishing. Um, and they haven't seen, you know, Biden campaign hasn't invested heavily in Texas. And I think that is a wise move from a resource perspective and just how hard it will be to win there. But all of these, these incremental gains are just so important, especially if we can, you know, flip some, um, some local seats as well as uh, sort of House of Representatives seats, you, you know, just it's exciting. I can't. I, I'm fascinated to watch Texas. I I'm not super hopeful that Biden will pull it out. I'm not super hopeful that MJ Hager will either. 
Um, but I do think uh, the vote totals are going to be eye popping um, and the result will be interesting. Even if he makes it close, I mean, that's historic. So anyway, I mean, Beto lost by, I think, 200,000 votes. Right. And we're already um, seeing in excess of that in terms of um, the trajectory for the number of people voting. So. Yeah, the new yeah, number. Good surprises all. Uh, absolutely. The, the I guess it is the the only hope I do hang on that apart from that uh, mo most recent poll is that as the point you said that the amount of what appears to be new voters turning out to vote mm. in Texas in a state that has obviously been a red state and a lot of people just probably didn't bother voting because they just didn't yeah. think they would make a difference. So now I suddenly realise, oh, we have a whiff here. Yeah. And one of the other groups that we don't really talk a lot about um, because they have historically been small, but we're seeing increasing numbers in California, Nevada, Texas is um, Asian American and Pacific Islander voters. Like they've historically been like, you know, two, three percent. Um, but the numbers that are registering and turning out, are, you know, five, six percent this time that we're seeing in some of these early numbers. And when you're talking like very thin margins, mm. um, that can really make a difference, right? Um, and activating the AAPI community, um, particularly in a place like Nevada, um, could be the difference between a win and a loss. And they're not historically loyal Democrats, um, but they are a community that has been targeted heavily by Trump's sort of racism um, and immigration policies, uh, and particularly with, you know, the way he's treated the coronavirus and the way he's sort of um, targeted um, people of Asian descent in, in, in that, in his response to that. So, you know, we could, we could be seeing some new groups activated this time around that um, maybe, you know, Democrats are going to have to work to make them loyal Democrats over the longer term, um, but maybe, you know, turning out to reject Trump. Uh, Fort Bend County, uh, which is a county in the suburbs of uh, Houston, I think off the top of my head, was another one that they spoke about. You can correct me if I'm wrong there, Katie. Uh, but it's actually where uh, Paul Begala is from and he talked about how much that county has changed so much. I think Tom DeLay originally was from that county himself. Um, and uh, it has been a Republican stronghold for a number of years, but in 2018, uh, 2016, I think it voted 51-44 Democratic for the first time in multiple generations. And he's sort of looking at that, his hometown or his home county, saying if we continue to make big gains there, and in particular when he returned home there earlier this year, he said that he went to like a sort of a, I think it was like um, like a, one of the local high school kickoff, uh, football team kickoffs, and they went to, went to his old college. And he said the diversity on the bleachers, is so different to when he was there. He said, and a huge, um, as you said, um, Asian American community, huge uh, Vietnamese, particularly Vietnamese American community and, and Muslim community. And he said that it's just, it's a beautiful melting pot. It's probably the fourth most diverse county in America. Um, and he's, his thoughts were that if it continues, if we see more movement there, that can be sort of the future of what Texas uh, could look like if it eventually does turn purple, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, you look at the maps of the places like Texas and Georgia and they look very red with these like blue dots over mm. them. Um, but the blue dots are where the people live. Right. <laughs> so you can look at a map of Texas and it can look drenched in red with like a little like a few different blue strongholds. But that's where the millions and millions of people live. Like you can you can win the state of Georgia by running up the margin really high within the Atlanta metro area, the, the greater metro area. And you see that a lot in North Carolina as well is another state where you see these, these dots of blue 
um, and they still sort of look red on the map because the rural areas which are sparsely populated are heavily Republican and will remain so. Um, but yeah, you can you can win these states with really from from a from a Senate or a presidential perspective, you can win them with really strong turnout in the um, urban and you know inner suburban areas. So um, that bodes well. Okay, we've come up to our hour. It's now prediction time. If anyone oh, is bold enough to make a prediction, and I will uh, I will tell you all that I'm prepared to make a prediction because um, I'm on the record. Uh, I, in 2016, uh, when we finally arrived in New York after traveling through the Deep South and all the way up through um, the Carolinas um, and Virginia and Pennsylvania and doing campaigning there, got into New York and did an interview with an ABC journalist based out of Washington, a radio interview on the steps of St. Patrick's Cathedral on Fifth Avenue. And she said at the end, Stephen, do you want to make any predictions? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I said, Hillary is going to absolutely shit it in. <laughs> How wrong I was. So I don't mind now. I've made an ass of myself on, on Australian radio, so I'm prepared to do it again. But I'm going to... Stephen, gonna... I was a goddamn pollster. How do you think I felt? <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe you were smart enough to keep your counsel just with, within the campaign. I told everyone. So anyway. Oh, man. So, Katie, are you... That was a rough night. Oh, it was a... oh, let's, not, let's not go. We could do a whole podcast on that. Let's not do that. First of all, Katie, are you prepared to make any predictions? Uh, no. Okay. I, I mean, I'm not going to predict electoral. I just think there's too much uncertainty. But I have some sort of fairly dire predictions. And one prediction is that even if defeated, we have a long journey to go to defeat Trumpism um, and all that that represents. Um, and I think a loss will make him a martyr in certain communities um, and his influence is not going to automatically leave the country. Mm. Um, and I think that in the next few years, we need a real reckoning on misinformation and disinformation and the role some of these um, online communities on Facebook and Twitter and all of that are playing. Um, it, it, is, it is dangerous for democracy. It is dangerous for civility. It is dangerous for our institutions and um, even if we win this election, we are not out of the woods on some really problematic and concerning trends for um, democracy and sort of the, the, the institutional foundations of, you know, American um, freedom and liberty, which are concepts that the right has co-opted, but are actually really important concepts for a functioning democracy. So um, I, I still, I am very hopeful for Biden, but I think we have a long way to go um, as a country to overcome some of the damage that has been done in the past four years um, and you know, even earlier than that, but, but particularly in the last four years. So I think there's, there's a lot of hard work to do. Sam, do you want to give us any predictions? Well, uh, I have quite a few predictions I better give then. Uh, so look, I think that uh, Biden will win. Katie, are, are, you're, you're nodding your head there. What do you think? I mean, I, I know I you're not going to so go bad. Record, but yeah, <laughs> I want it so bad. I just think that look, Trump has such an uphill, to, uh, such a steep hill to climb to be able to pull this out. And uh, if we are to execute this election as we've executed the vast majority of them uh, in our history, Biden should win. Now, uh, what I am really worried about uh, is the. Uh, delegitimization of ballots. So 
I'm worried about hundreds of thousands of ballots being discounted in multiple states and how that process plays out in the courts. The reason why I'm particularly worried about how it part plays out in the courts is because it gives it a veil of legitimacy. And that veil of legitimacy will be used to buoy and bolster not just Donald Trump, but Republicans in the Senate, particularly, who can shield him uh, and the party uh, from, you know, blow political blowback and investigation into it. Uh, so it's going to be really interesting to see uh, how uh, the court aspect plays out in this. I personally uh, feel good about a Biden win. I'm less optimistic that Democrats will win uh, the Senate uh, in this election. I think, you know, if they have a shot to win the Senate, it's going to be maybe in a runoff in Georgia that happens in January. Um, so we're, we're going to see what happens there. But um, that being said, again, even though the Biden campaign is feeling good about where they are, there are so many X factors here at play, especially with we, how we know this is going to be a contested outcome. I think one thing Sam said there is really important that we don't talk about enough is the reason Trump's path is difficult is that in order for him to win, he actually had to expand his appeal beyond 2016, right? He actually had to bring new people into the Trump fold. And what he and his campaign seem to have consistently done is actually shrink their focus and actually sort of draw, you know, a, a circle around their base and hold them tight and not actually make that effort to bring new people into their camp. So I think, you know, if anything gives me a little bit of hope, it's the fact that, you know, throughout his entire presidency, his approval rating has been historically bad, you know, barely out of the, the early 40s. I mean, to me, it's surprising that he even gets to the 40s, but that's a whole other question. Um, but he, he, has, he has never managed to go beyond his core supporters who are rabid and who are super into him. Um, uh, but the fact that he hasn't been able to expand that coalition, he hasn't been able to sort of make an appeal to people that didn't previously support him um, is really good news for Joe Biden, who has actually clearly been able to expand support beyond the Obama coalition to the groups that we've mentioned repeatedly, in particular, those older voters who um, really at were, were lost to Democrats for a long time um, and are not lost to us now. Um, so that's sort of... That's one optimistic note after my very depressing prediction. <laughs> and I don't want to then ruin your optimistic note, but I do want to throw one back at you. And I, I talked to, to Katie Parsons about this last week, and that is that the re, re, the voter registration program of the Trump campaign, or more the Republicans, over, over the better part of the last decade has been reasonably good. And even in the last four years, they've kind of gone up. There's enough evidence there to suggest that they're going after low propensity voters in that base that you're talking about mm -hmm, who mm -hmm. t traditionally don't vote anyway. So that's making it not only re registering them as an achievement, but actually then turning them out will be tough. Are we worried about that? Uh, I mean, look, I think it's a very, to me, that's a very state by state question. So like, that's one of the things that I worry about in Florida, that they actually have done a really good job at, um, uh, registering new uh, Republicans in Florida. Um, that's one of the reasons why Florida remains very, very close is that they've been actually pretty exceptional um, at their field program there. So to me, that's a very, it's very state by state. And again, sort of reinforces the degree to which those statewide offices are so important for building power long-term because the states where 
um, Republicans have actually done very well in that voter registration stuff is where um, it's a Republican Secretary of State, it's a Republican governor, they have the sort of all that institutional power um, that they can draw from to actually do that work. Um, and the states where Democrats have done really well, unsurprisingly, <laughs> are the opposite. So, um, you know, you look at places like the DLCC, which is the Democratic organization that's uh, working really hard to um, elect Democratic legislatures at the state level. Um, and that kind of work, I think, is, you know, it doesn't get the same glory as a lot of the other, you know, the big Senate races and all of that, but just so important. Um, and they're doing, you know, incredible work. They've raised a lot of money. Um, but that on election night, you know, we, we'll be very obsessed with the Senate results and the presidential results. But over the next week, we should really be looking at some of those legislative results because, you know, there's a census, we're going to be redistricting. There's a lot of, you know, power at play in this election beyond the top of the ticket. Um, and that's going to be, uh, tell us a lot about how the next few years will unfold as well. So there's, there's, there's other things to be conscious of um, going into next Tuesday. Okay. So, to wrap up, I'm going to make an idiot of myself <laughs> if you guys won't. And I, here's, here's my call. I think that Biden wins everything that Clinton won in 2016. And quite frankly, he has to. Uh, but also... Yeah, I was about to say. Yeah. I know. <laughs> um, like, let's start somewhere. Um, and I think he also wins Michigan. I think he wins Wisconsin. I think he wins Pennsylvania. I think he wins Arizona. I think he wins North Carolina, and I think he wins Iowa. Oh, that's bold. Um, Trump wins Florida, sorry, Texas, Georgia, Ohio, which gives Trump 227 and Biden 311. That is my prediction. Thoughts? Why Iowa? Where do you get Iowa from? Um, I've just been, I was looking at uh, the bunch of polls lately i know they don't do a lot of polling in there but it, it he's trump's going there why is trump going there he shouldn't be going there he's gone there twice yeah. in the last couple of weeks i think i was my smoky huh i i agree i was uh having been on the ground there i i think that um you know voters there are uh frustrated with the lack of competency in terms of dealing with uh, a couple of things, certainly the pandemic. And then I think there are enough people who are frustrated by the trade war and the way that that has worked out. There's so many stories about how, uh, you know, the farmers are sticking with Trump, but I think that there are definitely people there who have been impacted, not just by the trade war, but by climate change. Very significant weather events happened in uh, Iowa over the past year or two, um, which I think really puts the um, competency of the federal government in the spotlight. Very going to be can be very interesting to see how it plays out. Well, we will find out. Mm. But I, so I'd go. I'd say you'd win Georgia before I win Iowa. That's that's there's my prediction. Well, I hope you're right because there's, yeah, there's, yeah. there's more votes in Georgia. <laughs> yeah. No. <laughs> Um, yeah, I don't, if you want to do like a, an interesting dark horse to look at an election night, I think the Senate race in Alaska is going to be, is very odd. Um, Alaska's what about a, the one in Alabama? Oh, I love not, not looking good. No, I mean, I gave oh, Doug so Jones money because like, I, he's just such a good guy and he's a good yeah, Senator. Tommy and, Tuberville is a crank. Oh, it's so sad. He should he's be in insane. Oh, he's insane. Well, so anyway, sorry to interrupt. Let's go back to Alaska. 
I would just think it's like no one's paying a lot of attention to Alaska. It's a very sort of it has this real independent streak where it really likes to sort of mark its own, uh, put its own stamp on um, the people that it elects. Um, it's a it's a relatively um, easy state to buy, you know, uh, TV to, to sort of organize in because it's not the population is small. Um, and Gross there, who's running, who is running as an independent, but would caucus with with Democrats. Um, he's he's doing pretty well um <laughs> and i think the fact that nobody is paying a lot of attention to it it's not a big part of the narrative when it comes to the senate um means that you know alaskans are probably they could surprise us they could really surprise us with this it's it's interesting so here's the other thing is that the last time the democrats won a senate seat in alaska was 2008 uh mark baggage rode mm-hmm. the obama wave into yep. uh the senate there so if there is a sizable shift in the electorate there's no telling what can happen up there mm-hmm. uh fun fact uh for uh the viewers at home um sam Scheibman, where when you first got employed as a field organizer for OFA, where did they send you they sent me indeed to the great state of Alaska, where I uh, organized in the Kenai Peninsula, uh, in a town called Homer, uh, which is basically the end of the road. Like you see, like <laughs> the highway sort of stop. And then, why did they take you out of there? Well, uh, we were doing so well that uh, the, the McCain campaign decided it needed to shore up the base in Alaska that, by selecting its governor as their vice presidential nominee, which uh, is a really important piece of history because I don't think you get to Donald Trump without Sarah Palin. I know it's true. Anyway, look, we have to put it into this podcast because I feel like we can keep on talking for hours. No, this has been great. I've loved it. But I, honestly, you all have uh, things to go and do. Uh, last question, what are you both doing on election night? Do you have your own panic room set up? Uh, Katie, you first. Well, I'm in Brisbane, so it's going to be Wednesday. I'm mm. going to be like, you know, my parents have Foxtel, so I'll probably be there <laughs> watching CNN. Um, I think the signal threads on my phone will probably explode, mm. um, and I think I'm just going to be glued to the TV all day. Indeed. Mm. Sam? Well, it's tough because, uh, you know, definitely planning to do some phone banking throughout the day on Tuesday and and the weekend prior. But um, this is an election unlike others previous where, you know, either I was working in it or uh, there was some confidence in the outcome on the day. So you put all this mental energy into it. And I think part of me is going to try and not turn on the TV until you know five o'clock or so still going to be absolutely glued to twitter um which is definitely not healthy that's not a good idea (laughs) but uh yeah i'm uh i think what's really interesting is that um what makes me nervous about this is that this is going to be such an isolating experience. Typically you are with other people when you are watching the, the returns friends and you're in like a festive party atmosphere. doesn't always go your way, but uh, I think this is going to be my girlfriend and I in my house. And I don't like, I think we're going to try and like help each other through this. <laughs> Well, to both of you, thank you so much uh, for today's podcast. It was uh, a bit of a marathon, but I think we got there in the end. Um, and uh, I, um, I, I look, I, you know, this has been a bit of a journey. I don't even know how to wrap up this goddamn podcast because I just like 
you know, it's like four or five days to go when we record. You got to come up with like good luck and good night. Good night. I know. I just want to wish you all the best of luck. If I can give you a virtual hug and say, you know, just uh, he's hoping we get a result on uh, Tuesday US time. Yeah, seriously. I know. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you. Thanks, Stephen.